Today on Cinematics, real people, extraordinary situations. This is Akira. Mustn't let that boy go. The city will crumble. So many people, so many will die. We get to meet Akira again. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Cinematics. Today, we are talking about Akira. I'm Ryan. And I'm fucking Polly. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, Akira. Um, arguably one of the most influential, if not the most influential, animated film in history. Um, I say arguably because I'm sure cases could be made one way or another for a couple of other movies, but this film changed the way North American audiences viewed animation. It changed the way the global audience viewed animation. And it ushered in an era that we are still reveling in today, which is an era of anime fans and hardcore animation. Um, last last two weeks, we were talking about Spawn. Spawn. And yep. the animated series Spawn is, in a lot of ways, much like what Akira is in terms of an adult-directed uh, animated film series. And in the same way, Akira is graphic... It is violent. It is. Uh, it has sexual content. It deals with really heavy moral dilemmas. It talks about some really deep stuff, and a lot of it is kind of confusing because it's so much content jammed into two hours. But I would also argue, I don't know uh, if you agree with me or not, but I think that um, as far as adaptations of bigger works like akira is a six-part manga series that has i think over 2,000 pages and it's been adapted into less than two hours yep. and i would argue effectively i think that it's a little confusing but overall it touches on a lot of stuff and wraps up most of those things fairly well yeah i mean in in terms of in terms of the story especially towards the middle of the movie i didn't really have much of an idea on what was going on and part of that was because the the movie was adapted from like a ton of manga books yep and they didn't have time to explore everything so they were they were jumping around they well they weren't jumping around but there were just a lot of gaps that i wasn't i wasn't really getting and um just to kind of pick up on where where you left off about the influence that had on animation, but I think it was an influence it had on like everything. For sure, for sure. Um, Including life itself. Oh my God, life itself. <laughs> what a deep idea. Hello, kitty cat. Hey. Ow. No. Ow. No. Asshole. Cats. Lovely animals. Um. But yes, so let, let, let's start by talking about the impact on North America specifically. Um, because in the special features of 
the Blu-ray high-definition remastered release from 2001, which is the version we watched. There's a lot of talk about it online. There's a great video. Oh, my note is right there beside you um, as to who made the video. And I will be referencing it a lot because I thought it was a great video. Uh, so it's by Super Eyepatch Wolf. Uh, it's called The Impact of Akira. Um, some of our, uh, my research came from that as well as special features, etc. But I'm going to be referencing that video in a few things. So shout out to that guy for making a pretty sweet uh, homage, not homage, uh, talk about the, uh, the the film. Holla! Uh, but I think that on North American audiences, and and he talks about this too. But we're, we're, what they were used to Disney. When you talk mm -hmm. about animation, you, you're used to Cinderella. You're used to Snow White. You're used to you know the Little Mermaid. Like all of the stuff that was coming out from Disney and and every other animation group for the most part in the U.S. was catered towards children. Yeah. Um. Canada, up here, we actually had a really interesting animation run in the 80s and 90s. Um, oh, yeah, with, with like reboot and shit like that. Well, that too, but there was a lot of independent filmmakers who were making animated series and animated movies that were not really geared for children. They were, um, they were more adult in content, and I think that was kind of a global movement in a lot of ways around that time. Um, but the Canadian ones didn't get a lot of viewership. Uh, as is, unfortunately, a lot of the problem with Canadian films in general is they don't receive or they don't find that global audience uh, nearly so well. Yeah. But Akira got really, uh, I don't want to say lucky, but essentially they hit they, they hit a hole. They hit the market at the right time. Yeah. It came over. It had a limited run and audiences went expecting to see a classic animation Uh you know, a little bit toned down, kind of lighthearted, you know, more happy moral messages. And instead they got brutal graphic violence. Yeah. They got dark subject matter. They got heavy discussions. They got a lot of um, relation to uh, World War II in Japan. Yeah. Um, they got a life lesson from it pretty much. Essentially, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and... Hail sunshine and rainbows over here, sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> and it it took a lot like you can you can see in ways that it took from blade runner and it took from godzilla mm -hmm. and it took from uh cyberpunk ideas in general um and it really like expanded on those and created uh a and, and also uh the first terminator because in the one video we were watching from some right. massacre they mentioned the uh the whole tech noir tech noir uh, yeah uh, subgenre i guess you could say and i i feel akira is probably or Akira was, Akira was probably uh, pretty inspired by Terminator as well. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Um, and and it goes on to inspire video games, movies, uh, architectural influences uh, from from Tokyo at the time, um, Tokyo building up to the time. Um, you know, Ghost in the Shell being the next most successful anime I think in North America after was produced by a company that was only born because of Akira's success in the U S and that would be uh, manga entertainment. Mm -hmm. And they went on to be the primary distributor for all pretty much all anime that was successful in North America for, for quite a long time. Yeah. Um, it made, or they spent approximately $9 million in uh, 1988 money and they made approximately 6 million in the, in Japan 
and worldwide 49 million in the box office which when you total that in today's values that's 104 million dollars that that movie made off a nine million dollar budget that's a lot of cheddar man so much cheddar cheddar cheese um so i think inarguably it was extremely influential oh big time and if not like at the top of the list of influential animated movies for sure well and like i was telling you before too like i didn't even realize how how influential it was because um it it inspired a lot of my writing and i didn't even i didn't even realize it i'm like holy shit like this this like this animated movie has like saturated everything well so yeah to to build on that i guess like what what, talking with you about your script yeah uh and how uh the the world that you had built and and i'm sitting there thinking about because i had at that point i had watched this movie and i felt a lot of vibes from this and i felt a lot of vibes from uh blade runner and from uh all, all kinds of other movies um but you hadn't seen it yet yeah i hadn't seen it so it, it's interesting, I guess, that like influence that way, you can find yourself influenced by things that are influenced by other things, which I guess comes back to the whole cycle of art where everything is influenced by everything. Nothing, and, nothing is completely original. Yeah. And it, nothing ever has been. Totally. And if, if you want to, I think if you want to, um, if you, if you want to understand the way that your, your heroes make films or your heroes make art you have to see and explore how their heroes made art sorry i'm really distracted by, by the cat fucking cat i can't wait <laughs> every single time i know every single time uh last night she snuck in or the litter box was in our room because we had people over and it, we lock her up sometimes because she attacks people <laughs> if, if it's there's too many of them and the litter box was in our room and we didn't take it out and she was digging at like two in the morning and it woke both of us it was terrible Nice. I can't wait for us to be able to build this recording studio that I'm working on. <laughs> yes. Um, anyways, so all of that is to say this was an extremely influential film uh, that really moved me. I don't know how you felt about it, but I, I really liked it. Like by the end of it, by the end of it, I was just completely mind fucked. But like at, at the beginning of it, I was like, especially with the riots and just the scale of everything, like we were talking about the scale and I was just like, holy shit, like everything looks so big. Like you, you see that you see the landscape and you see the buildings and everything. And you feels like you're actually walking through Neo Tokyo. It's, it's pretty visceral. It's eh? crazy. Like, yeah, it was, I was just like, I, yeah, it just blew my mind just with the amount of detail and everything. Like, um, gonna jump forward a little bit just to the uh like all the mechanical aspects again with right. like the the helicopters landing like there were parts that you could see like bending and like um compressing and it just it felt so real it's like how how does someone draw something like that <laughs> and make it how does someone animate something like that to that level of detail i was just fucking blown away well, why, by that. why don't we talk about the animation then let's talk um, about the animation because something i found fascinating about this is that um some of the movie now not all of the movie but some of the movie was animated with 24 drawings per second which so, is equivalent to 24 frames yeah, a second yeah exactly it it's animated as though it were filmed with a camera now that's not the whole movie but for sure parts, a lot of the it was parts small. where it does that you notice it yeah like there's that scene uh kind of close to the end where he gets it, he his arm um Ta- Ta- 
Tetsuo. Tetsuo, uh, yeah. Tetsuo's arm is blown off by a gigantic solar beam, and he fixes it by bringing together all of these pieces of metal to form a me mechanical metal arm. And it, the movement of those pieces through the air and the way they melded together was so fluid that it just it felt like it was right there you know like like yeah, you was... could almost see the screws spinning themselves yeah into exactly places. and and that 24 those 24 animated frames i'm sure that like i don't have proof that that scene was but i'm I, i'm sure that it, that I'm, scene was i'm sure they had that in 24. mind when they when they were developing that uh yeah yeah they, they must have and and the i guess to that extent the detail in in all of that so you know when, when you've got those big big vistas of neo tokyo and the cameras moving and then the perspective of yeah, the, the buildings are animated changes. the perspective yeah. of the ground when we're really close up and characters mm -hmm. and moving in and the ground is moving with us yeah you know it just it gives it such a such an in-your-face sort of feeling you know yeah so uh really quick i just want to jump back again okay um but one of the reasons i was also having trouble following the movie right aside from just the way it was it was plotted out i guess was just cuz we we watched it in japanese yep. and i felt like i had to i had to read i was trying to keep up with the reading too much so i i would recommend even though like i like watching movies with like the native language like playing because that's how they should be watched but with this one i feel like i have to go back and watch the dub version of it just so i get a better idea on what was going on i uh i can do you watch a lot of subtitled movies i do watch a lot of subtitled yeah, okay. movies but there were times where i didn't have quite enough time to keep up with it just because i was looking at something in the background or i was trying to pay attention to the animation or i was you know whatever so there'd be parts i missed just because sometimes it goes by really quick oh it sure and you get distracted by all the again all the beautiful animation and then you miss some dialogue or you're <laughs> yeah. like trying really hard to keep up with what the dialogue is saying and I, I i've gotten better over the years at being able to read and watch at the same time but it's really difficult yeah you won't um, get the same effect if you have to multitask though no totally and i i do understand um wanting to watch it uh with the english dub i think that it's not uh, my preferred way of watching it but no. just just so i have a better idea on you, what's then going you don't on. have to focus on the text you can you can just watch everything kind of unfold and that that does sound really nice uh but i also really enjoyed watching it with subtitles or more oh, so i just yeah. enjoyed the japanese it's how it should version. be watched right uh well yeah the performances are um what the director wanted more specifically than than uh, uh, an English dub might be, uh, it suits more. Actually, so talking about that, why don't we talk about uh, something in the with the uh, that was mentioned in the director's interview, yes. talking about pre-composing, because mm -hmm. uh, that that was something that I that was a topic I found really fascinating, because he uh, so pre-composing is essentially the actors record their dialogue, all of their lines, the whole script is done before the movie's animated. Yeah. So rather than the actors sitting in front of a screen and watching the character actions and sort of reacting to that, they get to play out the performance as they view it to happen, read out the dialogue, perform the dialogue as they feel it works with the character, and then the animators go in afterwards to make that yeah. action a reality based on those performances. And I feel that's that's more that's more natural. Like, I I think so. Like it the it because if you were if you were an animator and you were sitting there listening to the audio of the actors, I feel like subconsciously you would draw that animation 
to the actor's character. Totally, yeah. You know, just, you know, there might be some little nuance in their personality that comes out or whatever, like in their voice where the animator might just animate it a certain way just to bring that out a little bit more and not even really realize it too. Totally. And, and I think you can tell the difference too, because you listen to, they were, they were done alternatively. So the English dubbed version, obviously the, the English actors were performing to the actions that were on screen Yeah, and, and you can feel a mechanical sort of like they're almost like they're reading off paper in a lot of ways in some of that performance. And you're like, okay, I mean, this is, this is fine. But like there, there's definitely moments where you're, where you can feel them pacing themselves to the action. Um, well, and even just the way, uh, the Japanese language works, it has a different pace. It has a different yeah. rhythm. So when someone comes in with like, a you know, with an English person comes in and tries to dub over that, it might even feel a little bit unnatural to them just for the way that, you know, the lip flaps might be going or whatever, you know? So, well, like, and, and there's more characters, I think like when, when you're speaking a Japanese sentence, I believe there's more, uh, syllables that come out for the same words or the same sentence as you would have in English. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that kind of changes the pacing, I think a little bit as well. Uh, it's, it's interesting though to that too, because in that interview, the director talks about, um, how it's a very visual movie like he wanted he thought it was very important that this wasn't a a film it wasn't an animation it was a visual piece a visual artwork which any movie should be it should be more visual than telling like if you're if you want to tell something it should be with the music totally you know i'm not to say that there shouldn't be any like there should be no dialogue in movies yeah, yeah. but like at the end of the day it is a visual medium and it should be shown well, shown instead of being told unless unless it um it's absolutely necessary show show not tell i totally agree with saying that it's a purely visual medium i i'm not going to completely disagree with you yeah well maybe not completely like but you know what i mean yeah primarily we'll say primarily it's visual yeah it it definitely has a lot of visual uh cues to it but i think what makes films so much different then is it's all of them uh than any other art form is instead of taking one it conglomerates all of the different arts into into one. Oh, for sure um yeah. but i guess I, f- I find it interesting because he says that this is important it's important that this is a visual work uh especially because he's basing it off of his uh, the director is basing it off of his own manga series which still isn't done yet interestingly enough oh. like at the time that he made the movie, the series wasn't finished is what just, I mean. There. Just like, just like spawn spawns still going. Well, the, the series itself <laughs> is done now. There's it, oh, it's okay. complete. Okay. But what I mean is in 1988, when the movie came out, Oh, uh, right, right. The, yep. the series mm-hmm. was not finished. It wasn't finished until 1990. Um, but and anyways, he, he calls it a, a visual artwork because it's based off of this visual graphic novel piece. But then also he really prioritizes performance over giving a little bit more freedom to the visual aspect. It's more constricting to the animators to have to try and animate to the person acting. Sure. But in a way, it's a little bit more liberating too because, you know, you in, in some ways you have a little bit more to work with when you can actually hear how how the actors are saying a certain line. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think that personally, if I ever get the chance to do an animation, which I have said previously in this animation sort of segment that we've done over the last few weeks that I would love to get an opportunity at some point. I think that's how I would want to do it. 
um, as well. I would too, yeah. I, I think it would it would provide an interesting challenge, but it also like performance is, is everything in a film, and especially in a movie like this where it's 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 really it's not really a character piece, but it's it relies heavily on a lot of performance, and restricting your performers in their performance can only hinder the process of the movie and, and the, yeah. the eventual success of it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, and, and to that end, I guess as well, uh, there was a lot of firsts in this, a lot of first times, a lot of first pieces, and it was a very technologically developed movie, uh, that this is, t- uh, still on the topic of the animation. And, um, just to, just to make a note on that too, right. which also fits the story because the story is a very technical, technologically advanced mm-hmm. uh, world as well. So the the fact that they went in and they tried to make those technological advances in service of the story, I think, says quite a bit too. It's really cool. And yeah. and listening to listening to the director talk about his vision and the way that he had planned things out, like the the detail that he put into his planning into into every aspect you know the detail of how important it was that the music needed to be perfect so they recorded all of the music before anything else so that when they came in uh they had the score ready which to go back to that technological bit uh really fascinating i had no idea about this until watching those special features but the idea of building modules of of composition so they would take instruments and they would have little modules of each each instrument that would be like a scale or a section of, of music or a, a coherent little piece. Yeah. And then the computer that they had would take all of these modules and compose them into songs kind of almost automatically based on algorithms that they'd created in that right. system. Yeah. yeah. And I, I was just blown away, first of all, by the fact that that was even possible. Yeah. Um, like a computer just did a very human thing by making music, essentially. It, yeah. Essentially, it created a lot of the songs. And afterwards, there's the performance aspect in the recording of it that, you know, builds and develops it. But yeah, but a computer created a lot of that, a lot of that soundtrack based yeah. on uh, instruments that were previously never able to be uh, replicated by MIDI and synthesizers as well which is kind of cool. Um, and all of that was like synthesizers were in there and it was traditional Japanese. It was like a mix of like traditional futuristic computer generated, like all of these different things combined to make this insane score. That's so unique. And it was, it had, it had a sound of, uh, being, being human, but also being kind of distant from being human just because right. of that technological aspect and that's what the whole movie's about really. Yeah, I mean there there's all of those bits where it's it's people uh, qu- uh choirs singing like choral pieces. Yeah. Um almost not really vocally or not not vocally not <laughs> with words but just uh like just almost human human chanting. sounds. Yeah. Yeah. Like and they they like another good example of that too is they he was recording um the choir on a balcony yeah and which makes you feel even further apart from that human aspect i guess you it could gives say. it an echo and a distance yeah. that that is hard it doesn't replicate the same if you just add it in in, in post after you've recorded stuff uh yeah just like out of the detail man the detail that they put into every piece of this yeah you know? just the animation the voice acting the music like everything it's, it was crazy like i was just blown away by that you know 
And, and, and another thing they did while we're on the topic of like the technological part of it too, um, because one of the ways that animation really differs from traditional live action filmmaking is when you go out live action and film stuff, you kind of have an idea of all your shots mm-hmm. and you know what pieces you need and you have a sense of how they're going to come together. I mean, as a director, you should at least have a yeah. sense that when you get to set, you're not making stuff up as you go along. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but with animation, you have to basically have your edit done in the storyboarding before you you even put it together because otherwise you're drawing frames and frames and frames that you don't need and animating all of this stuff that you just don't need. Yeah. Um, but the director was not a like a film person. He doesn't he hadn't done movies really. He yeah. did mostly gra- uh, comics and and graphic novel style stuff for a, a, a magazine. So he and in the, his interview he specified that he didn't feel as comfortable knowing that it was there so they essentially adapted and used for the first time in this production a piece of technology where they would take the storyboards that were uncolored and kind of mostly rough drawings and they would use keyframes and and then the in between this mach- machine would create the in betweens to animate storyboards so they could make sure the edit was going to work before they started coloring and detail drawing everything yeah. out, which I found really interesting because, you know, you don't know necessarily. And if it would really suck to find out that half of your budget went to, you know, drawing a bunch of frames that you didn't need and like yeah. weeks of, of animating that wasn't used. Because in, and especially with editing, like it's uh, pacing is very important because even if even if something goes on slightly too long, even if it's a couple frames, you'll notice it. Mm-hmm. You know, so the fact that they put this thing in a they put this whole thing in a computer and just had it, um, I guess I guess think in a way think that it was an audience member and seeing yeah. how this like computer would feel watching this movie. You know what I Kinda, mean? Kinda, yeah. yeah. It ran these these prints out essentially. And yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's and uh. Just to mention, like this was made in the '80s, so the amount of paper, yeah, and and you know the the amount of paper that they had to use to to do this thing on top of the oh, speed man. the speed that those printers fucking did it. Could oh, you imagine man. sitting there being the person who had to sit there at the printer just like taking <laughs> these pages out? Well, and it's cell animation, right? So yeah. essentially, it's for anyone who might not know what cell animation is. It was before computer generated. It was how all animation was done, which is basically uh, multiple frames or multiple parts of a frame drawn mm-hmm. on separate, uh, like clear cells. So there'd be like the background background, yeah. like the sky, and there'd be a background piece for like the ground, and then there'd be like the trees and stuff, and and there'd be levels to the to it that would give it depth. Uh, and you'd layer them on top of each other, and then at the very end you'd put the characters on, and you'd have these multiple drawn cutout pieces of characters in their motions that would go in and you'd clamp it into place and take a picture with a camera and then take a guy out and put another one in. And you'd sit there for weeks just transferring these drawn cells in and out. And it's, uh, it's very similar to rotoscoping. Very. Yeah. And rotoscoping is brutal, man. I hate it. Yeah. Like I, I did, uh, I did a thing when I was like 15 of like a lightsaber battle. Oh yeah. I animated some lightsaber blades and dude, it took forever. Like for, like 10 seconds it took me like three hours or something something yeah that that sounds about right i mean i'm currently working on a short that i shot uh with a friend of mine just like kind of off the cuff we just decided to shoot this thing and we worked a uh a visual effects shot into the end with essentially uh i'm layering 
three dolly shots on top of each other. Uh, so there's a dolly shot with our lead in the frame. There's a dolly shot with uh, one of the gr uh, the other lead laying in the bed, and there's a dolly shot with nobody in it and just an urn in the background, kind of thing. Oh. And each of those shots are locked frame, locked everything, just panning on a, on a Dana dolly. Right. And I'm now taking those pieces and almost frame by frame having to mask pieces of the character versus the backgrounds out to make this weird transition between them. Right, right. And I mean, I'm having a lot of fun with it, but like I've probably put six hours into it and I'm maybe half done a minute long shot. Okay, that's that's not fair. I, don't, I can't say I hate rotoscoping. It's just it's just very grueling. It's a very grueling yeah. process. It's very it can be rewarding. It's, it's the same very, thing with stop very, motion. I mean, I can't. I oh I'm yeah, and I like here, I like stop. I, I like doing stop motion. I I can't even imagine. Like like I can as a director. I can imagine, but but having to just sit there and piece by piece moving these little like it it's a very long, uh long process that's very detail oriented, and the end result is always not always, but it's very often just beautiful. And you can do so much with world building and creation of these insane, like Neo Tokyo from Akira, like building that city, making that city possible in 1988 without having enough money to like build sets and do all this stuff. Like yeah. they could have done it the Blade Runner route for sure. Uh, but there's something to having just this gigantic, excessive, size that really plays well in animation it's also the fact that animation can make you feel like you're actually there like i felt with that specifically i felt like i was i was there more than most movies out really there. yeah like i don't know what it was it was just the scale and the perspective and everything that just especially with those establishing shots of the city and everything i was just like I don't know. <laughs> I just it, not, it just got you. Hey? Yeah, it just got me. It just hit me, man. Like, oh man, Polly's speechless. I'm, I'm, I'm fucking speechless. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just grabbing some water. But yeah, um, so to that uh, sort of point and talking about the city and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. I would love briefly to talk about the lighting. Um, from uh, I know you. We talk a lot about production design because mm. you're kind. Of, you you are a production designer and a prop maker, and that uh, is your kind of wheelhouse. And for me, I think where I really know a lot best, besides having directed, is is being within lighting and 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 grip work. So sure, yeah, I kind of have some some kind of basis on how these things get put together. And watching this movie and watching the way that they animated the light, to me was was almost mind-blowing because i mean first of all i'm not an artist i don't i don't draw i i have no i i shouldn't say i'm not an artist well i don't deal in paper to pencil to paper yeah. i don't do drawings and You're an artist in a different media yeah exactly yeah. and and the idea of of drawing out a frame in which light looks like it has depth and moves naturally and bounces off objects and cast shadows on people's faces and gives people uh halos around their head like the the amount of light use in the animation and having to draw that the the complicated like console boards throughout that have the yeah, bright man. glows yep. the the gigantic white light explosion that just blinds everything the like yeah and and to that point that you mentioned from the cinemascore video about tech noir 
Yeah. Uh, I've never heard that phrase before until we watched that video, but I found that really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Because it pretty much embodies what this movie and uh, cyberpunk and steampunk and like a lot of those like dark, gritty, technological sci-fis are mm-hmm. in a way. And this totally is. Yeah. And, and to that effect too, like when you mentioned lighting, you can have you can have the coolest fucking looking set ever, but if you don't light it properly and you don't have like dynamic lighting and you don't, you know, you don't light it properly. It's it flat. Look, it's boring. It's, it's boring, right? Like, yeah, you need color. You need light. Like that's one of the biggest things about film is lighting. I'm, and I'm not, I, I'm and not, I don't think it gets enough credit either. It really doesn't. And that, that's not, that's not to me being like a, a grip or a, a lighting. No, for sure. But being like, know, Oh, we don't get enough credit, man. No, but no, like, no, but you know what I'm saying though? Yeah, no, yeah. for sure. Cause I mean, to be fair or to, to be frank, like in, within, I mean, you should live action it. within live action films, grip and lighting are some of the, are more towards the bottom of the pay scale. First of all. Yeah. Um, and they're sort of treated like your dumb stepbrother who, you know, they're kind of like, oh, man, they're just the, the trade guys, the tech guys. And, right. like, you know, they're, they're like yeah, joke, they're not, jokes, they're, whatever, not a, but they're like, not above the line like us. No, or, or, or they're not the camera guys or they're not yeah. the actors. But mm-hmm. like if um, I've seen like there's so many movies where you've got all this great stuff and then there's no either no light or or it's just flat lighting. And it just it ends up being really really boring and it's like yeah sure you don't have a picture without the camera crew but also you have a picture of nothing if you don't have the lighting guys so yeah, exactly you know there's there's a lot to be said and, and people don't uh a lot of people don't necessarily look at how films are lit and and that's fine if you don't i mean if and, you're not a a cinema a cinephile or you're not a person in the industry it's a lot harder to maybe sure. notice those oh things. yeah for sure and you know um, you shouldn't as as a general audience member you shouldn't really notice it like it should no, be we, should we be haven't done our job right yeah if you're if you're like picking stuff like that necessary unless the point is that we want to, to attract it. you to that yeah but but it, it's just it's just something to consider i guess when when watching movies because i i always like to look at how it's lit when i watch a film to see how how they accent things or don't and how they use shadow and how they don't use shadow uh, to go back to Spawn for a minute, talking about how they always keep in the animated version, how they always keep, uh, say, Jason Wynn mm-hmm. in shadow, or the villains are always like in shadow, and the way they use anti-light—that's a word. Anti-light. Anti-light. Negative space, possibly. Ne- negative fill? No, negative fill is a different thing. Anyways, shadow versus light and contrast to create a story in the frame beyond just what you're being told on the other thing showing not telling yeah exactly and the other thing is too with the uh with the animators they got a big job like they're 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 drawing the characters they're drawing the emotions of the characters they're drawing Mm -hmm. the lighting they're drawing the sets they've got a ton of stuff on their plate they're doing they have to be everything everything. yeah exactly and 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 i guess there's there's a lot there's a lot to be said about that you know because we're talking about people who who are essentially artists but not only are they artists in the form of like drawing frames and drawing stills mm-hmm. but they're they're drawing these stills in a way that they have to be thinking forward to how they're they're going to be animated and how they come together and you know obviously there's the people who draw the keys and the in-betweens and the people who draw sure. the backgrounds and whatever yeah. but all of those things have to coordinate together and everybody has to be thinking about everything while they do it yeah and essentially they're they're illustrating emotion yeah like totally that's i don't know like 
I think that's all you really have to say about it is they're just they're they're drawing like they're drawing they're emotion, illustrating yeah. emotion yeah, yeah exactly. i mean because in, in a in a live action you can definitely the, like the cast plays the emotion for you the lighting text you know help set up that the camera guys use camera to, and all of all the different people do one specific thing to create this and exactly it seems like in animation a lot of times these guys are doing it all and then the cast is bringing the voice to it yeah, pretty much. Um, and the you know the musicians are bringing the music to it. And well, stuff. yeah, they but, you know. Yeah. But it's, you so know, same thing. Uh, to that point about the music, I think maybe it's worth mentioning. Uh, we wrote the name down there. I'm just trying to seek seek it on that sheet right now. Uh, there we go. Yeah. So it's. Can you read that? It's way too far away for me um, to read that. Gino Yamashiro Gumi. That's the one. So that's the that's the group that compo or uh, performed and I think composed as well. The uh, the the soundtrack for this movie, um, which apparently the director found because they did a whole bunch of choral pieces, and and that led him to them, and they're like, oh, choral pieces, this needs to be a part of this film, so we're gonna use these guys. And he um, also took, um, the director also took precedent in making the score first before anything yep. else. Yeah. Which was really difficult for them to do because they they had to get. There's a siren. There's, um, there's a lot of those around here. <laughs> But they had to get, they had to figure out the pacing of the music before the animation was even done. Like, yep. so they had to make the music in a way where they could just put it on top of the animation and have it work. Which maybe is part of why that module thing came into play so well, right? Because right. now, now we're talking about creating chunks, little little bite-sized chunks of music that can be manipulated and adjusted for scene length duration and all that kind of stuff and still remain consistent so that's almost technological advancement by necessity in a, in a way mm -hmm. yeah exactly that, yeah like there's almost no other way to have done that without animating to the music which can be super awkward sometimes yeah um sweet i think we've covered all our bases on animation text stuff uh, I'm, I know sure, you, I'm sure we'll jump back to it again anyway. Probably, but I know you wanted to talk about production design, so why don't we talk a bit about production design? Yeah. Um, first off, like uh, Neo Tokyo looks a lot like LA from Blade Runner. To totally, like, yeah. Like hugely. But I, I feel with with this, there's I'm, again, I'm going back to the whole the whole depth of it. But you know, you see, like uh, at the end when um, spoiler, mm. but uh you know when akira finally came out and all the and we meet him for the first time yeah and you could see it like just the, the just the complexity in it like you could see all the hoses and stuff like punching out of the ground oh. and like you know like there's just so many little details like the drawing of of his gigantic freezing cube yeah. or a freezing sphere that had yeah. yeah all those oh man and yeah. the way it just sort of popped up and steam everywhere and and again going back to that 80s aesthetic of uh analog mechanical, mechanical things right like even at the beginning when he like this was one of the things that caught me uh right away was when uh uh tetsuo yep when he was outside on um uh kanada's bike and he he's like hey he's like you like you want to take on it for canada's a bike on canada's bike. i'm sorry it, i just find it really <laughs> funny <laughs> to listen to to some people because um, everybody says it differently they do i don't and, even and know how to say it there, 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 there's a distinct <laughs> pronunciation in the japanese uh you know edit or the japanese version of the movie mm -hmm. where it's uh canada canada yeah canada canada yeah 
um, and yeah, Kana- you know Kanata. Tetsuo and and Akira and all those. And it's yeah. it's just I, I, for an English tongue, you know, not speaking those, it's it's, it's hard in regular conversation to keep that up. It's just funny listening to the different <laughs> pronunciations you yeah. hear of these different Canada and Texicon <laughs> was what Cinemassacre yeah. used, I think, right? But um, even when he's outside on his bike and he he ha- he's holding onto the handles like the handlebars of the uh of the bike and then he just his bike or of um or canada's bike canada's bike yeah and then he just the, like the way it like shifts up so he can like get off of it and then when uh cannot like canada can- 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 yeah i'm just gonna call him canada perfect no. canada so, in canada mal, mal- bougie in canada i dig <laughs> it let's do it but um yeah, just like when he when he pushed the the handlebars up, and yeah. then when uh, Canada got back onto his bike, he pulled it back down. It's just all those like all those little interactions like that are just I don't know. They're, they're very mechanical and they're very and that's visceral. something I'm, that's something I'm always gonna talk about. Like I just love seeing those little interactions with well those uh, things. And I, I love hearing you talk about it because it's something that I never had thought about. Oh, okay. nearly so much before we started talking about movies on the on this show uh, is just the idea that. Uh, interacting with objects in real mechanical ways sort of make those objects feel like they're there, especially in animation. You know, like yeah. you were talking before about the helicopters when mm-hmm. they land and you see their wheels hit and and the tires compress and the springs compress and yeah, it and feels there's... like there's a weight there that yeah. squishes, right? Yeah. Whereas you see in a lot of animation, there's especially in rotoscoping too, but you you see a lot of uh, moments that feel like there's no weight to anything. Yeah. They're just sort of there and it kind of takes away from the vis the real visceral feeling yeah so when we're talking about a bike gang in like the the slums of a, a, a rebuilding city after a gigantic catastrophe you know to to be able to really feel those bikes which yeah feel and, like it, feel their heft and their speed and everything because yeah. uh actually just real quick uh just with final fantasy 7 right children yeah right? um in terms of the animation and the weight things have um it just nothing really feels like it has weight because if you if in you watch it, children you're yeah, yeah yeah like like they're flying around on these bikes going like 300 kilometers an hour Mach like they're nine. yeah they're going fast and like they're jumping off a ship but it just doesn't feel like those bikes have any sort of real weight to them i mean nothing in the movie does because i mean characters are flying around chopping buildings in half and shit like that you know like (laughs) it's all like it's it's all this stuff but it just you just never really feel like if someone got hit by that bike like it wouldn't feel like it would damage you yeah like it would just i I don't know like you can see the speed like those things can fly in that movie but like when it comes just to the the heft and um just whatever else it just doesn't feel like there's much danger like yeah when um at the beginning at that bike chase that guy falls off the bike and he gets his arm run over you you feel that yeah like i i i heard you and felt you move when that happened <laughs> yeah. too like that was where you know and, and you see it coming you know you see him yeah. going and you're like oh god he's gonna get his face run over and then it's just his arm yeah and it's still it feels so um i don't know yeah it was just felt like cringy yeah when and, it happened and uh like i was telling you before it, it's been a while since a movie has got a reaction out of me like this because mm-hmm. i mean i've i've seen some shit right <laughs> i've seen some shit man i got like the thousand yard stare of like movies i mean spawn at age five that probably yeah. set you up for well, uh yeah i mean I've, I've seen some shit man i like i said i got the thousand yard stare for movies yeah but um yeah like and it's it just comes down to that heft like i think 
an important thing of uh, production design is just making things feel like they they're real and they have weight and they have a function to them. Yeah, and and I think that to to talk about the violence, say for a minute in in this, because that that is a really important topic I think in this movie, um, because a lot of anime and and Japanese animation in general, a lot of it involves violence to some extent or another. There's a lot of fighting. There's a lot of combat there's a lot of um blood and and everything and it's a lot of the time it's not necessarily uh portrayed with any kind of reality um yeah or at least dragon ball z like i've never been a fan of dragon ball z it wasn't really my thing either but you know just the i like i like grounded action i don't like like seeing the the crazy stuff like dragon ball z and final fantasy is pretty cool but it just Mm -hmm. Oh, it just it lacks it lacks something. I don't know. It, it's it's more catered towards younger audiences where it's not about real uh real fighting and real real yeah, action. It's yeah. about it's about sort of playing it up and, and hyper exaggerating this sort of uh I don't want to say hyper masculine, but essentially this hyper masculine sort of like combat that that glor I, I almost glorifies the fight. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think this movie ever once does that. No, it um, doesn't. No. You know, when when people get shot, it's like, oh, she, you know, one of the characters, uh, K, 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 she, yeah. or key. she, uh, it's or pronounced something. K in the movie. Okay, okay. Um, okay. She shoots one of the the police soldier military police guys that are chasing her in the face, and you know, in a lot of movies, it'd be like, oh, exploding head, or like the whole thing is like this big deal, but like it just catches his mouth, tears half of his cheek off. And and kills him because it's a headshot and you know that's what happens. Well, and generally. he was also in like this like sewer runoff as well, so he probably just died of infection. Right All, away. Also that, <laughs> uh, but it it just it it didn't feel like there was no glorification of of that. There was it was a revolutionary doing what she had to do to survive in a world that she felt was was so backwards and that needed to be changed. And so she shoots this guy who's who's trying to kill her. And the action doesn't glorify it. The the visual representation of gore and blood and and the violence itself doesn't glorify it. It just feels real. And she felt really shitty after she did that too. Yeah, yeah. Know? And you can see it, and it's barely mentioned, but you can you can see that she's di- uh, uncomfortable with what has transpired. And uh, even at the beginning too, to the, to that note is uh, when that guy just gets fucking blasted away by all those uh, SWAT officers. Oh yeah. Oh Dude, man. Like. As as soon as I saw that, it reminded me of the first RoboCop movie when they kill Alex Murphy. Yeah, and yeah, like they it just, wasn't as it wasn't as graphic, but like it was it 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 felt like something you would actually see on the news or something. Right. Well, and and that's that's interesting too. Uh, I think we need to talk about that for just a second. Okay. Um. But so the movie is set in 2019. Yes. Uh, as well as the first Blade Runner set in 2019. Mm-hmm. So there's like a bunch of there's a bunch of sci-fi sort of apocalyptic ish kind of movies set in this year but i i and you know they have different messages but i just found it really funny that as we were talking about while we were watching it you know 2019 for um for akira is social unrest uh sort of Mm. bureaucratic uh not not in interference and everything leaders that nobody believes in uh, a lot of riots, a lot of violent riots, and I'm looking at some of the stuff that's going on in pretty close to home and seeing mm-hmm. a lot of parallels in a lot of ways that I find really funny that, you know, something could be very 
on par with how the world not to say that like the world is akira right now but um there there are elements of that in akira mm-hmm. and uh um to kind of build on that too when i was in japan i was talking with uh with someone about that it was just about politics and stuff a little bit and he said that uh um, that's actually a problem in in Japan with their leaders is that they're very indecisive and they're very bureaucratic. And you can totally see that. Yeah. We see the government once, and the one time we see them, it's like what ten old white men. Well, not white men, but they're they're portrayed as white guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like white Japanese. Uh, white it, white Japanese hard. men. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's hard with animation because people so, yeah, in Japanese animation often look white. There's a bit but, of interpretation in there. Yeah, but but they're like they're old old guys who are all very indecisive and they're all very uh, bureaucratic and they're all very about like follow the system and do the thing and they don't even care that everything is falling apart in the world around them and that all of their people are unhappy and this and that. All they care about is following protocol, doing the paperwork, saving money. Um, you know, and like some of these elements are important, but you can really see that critique there, even in that mm. like two minute, I, I five minute scene. And it, I mean, it doesn't really matter if it's in, you know, like because this movie was made in 1998, like or ni- ni- 1988. Yep. Sorry, but um, I think that's gonna be something that's always gonna be, always gonna be there. You know, if you or I were to make a movie now and exp- like kind of uh, touch on that whole bureau- bureaucratic fucking nonsense that always happens in politics. Yep. Um it would still be relevant, uh, you know, 20 years from now. Uh, I mean, a hundred percent because at the end of the day, and I hate to sound like a cynic here, but I'm going to do it. (laughs) Uh, at the end of the day, it, it feels like people have this sort of weird cycle. And I've, I talk about this with Canadian politics with people. Sometimes I find it really interesting that it basically ends up being, we elect somebody for four years um, they do a whole bunch of stuff and then everybody gets mad because they're like, oh, this happened or the economy's bad or blah, 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 this or that. And everybody gets like grumpy that these people didn't do what they want. So everybody elects the exact opposite end of the spectrum. You know, we go from conservative to uh, NDP in Alberta or we go from conservative to liberal mm-hmm. federally. Mm-hmm. And as soon as that happens and the governments that we just elected start doing, making the changes that they said they were going to make and trying to change policy to be more towards their party's alignment everybody's like oh i don't like this anymore this is terrible and then we go all the way back the other way the next time and you just keep bouncing back and forth and you just get this cycle of yeah changing one way changing the other way undoing everybody else's work all the time and getting nowhere and that's that's just i think uh a general fact of human nature that people, oh totally people don't it, like change. It, it's been happening in the u.s i mean every everybody was really mad before obama was elected about uh the uh various um leaders up to that point and so they elect obama as this big change and then he gets eight years which is saying something concerning that means he was re-elected mm. uh but now at the end of his term and he's he's been replaced and they've gone the exact opposite direction again yeah. um and I think that's just kind of people, you know, people need something to blame. People mm-hmm. need something to complain about. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that anything ever changes because they're just finding something new to blame and complain about without solving yeah. situations and, sometimes. And also uh, in one of the featurettes that we were watching, just just the general, like kind of like the general story elements of Akira um, mm-hmm. will kind of be timeless. Like it'll, totally. it, it's a timeless story, right? Like, there's elements of the eighties in there. There's elements of like, even, even stuff now, right? Like it's always going to be relevant just because of the story. And they were also saying that 
they weren't catering to any specific audience. They yep. just wanted to make something, and then that's why it stuck is because yep. they they weren't pandering to any specific audience or anything like that. They just wanted to tell a story the way they wanted to. And I mean, granted, it doesn't always work out. I mean, the room is a good example, mm, right? Yeah. But but, the, but there's a difference between just wanting to tell a story and doing it well. You know, yeah, cause, putting cause, the work into it. Yeah. Well, and and it's it's interesting because there's a couple of different ways and uh, theories behind you know how to how to write and market a movie. And there there's mm. I've I always hear from the more enthusiastic and and optimistic filmmakers and and educators that. Um, you know, you, you need to make what you want to make, because if you're making your story, you're passionate, like as a director, you're passionate about it. You care about it. You're putting your best work into it. And at the end of the day, if it's your story that you want to tell, you're going to make something great out of it. If, if as great as you can. Yeah. Um, and then there's the other side of the coin where people say, Oh no, you should always make what's marketable and we're only going to buy the stuff that's marketable. And like from a business standpoint, because film is a business, it is Yeah. from a business standpoint, it makes sense to create content that is uh within the scope of what people are paying to see so if, if you you know in the modern day and age people don't watch westerns anymore not often, i mean anyway. I, I when was the last time other than tarantino's movie that flopped uh hateful eight uh i mean it probably didn't actually flop but from what i've heard it's not very the good. hateful eight yeah, yeah. I, I fell asleep in it three separate times there you go <laughs> so like besides that what was the last western you remember being like a big popular new movie have, have oh. has one even been made like people well, I, around I, I the have, world don't watch westerns anymore yeah i mean i i have watched westerns but i didn't even know about them there was one that i just watched called the sisters brothers you ever hear that see yes so i have yeah. that book and that's that's an interesting i i would say uh exception because it's a criticism of westerns in and oh, okay. of itself the I book itself uh, the book is, it was written to provide a critique on the genre of Western and break boundaries and try and do different things with it. Mm. Um, and I, I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know. The movie was pretty good. I was, was really, it? I was really tired when I watched it, so I don't really remember too much of it, but fair enough. Um, uh, it, it's yeah. interesting though, because essentially they don't really hap- It doesn't really happen anymore. Um, so to come out now and be like, I'm going to make a $150 million Western, mm-hmm. I, I, it's not a smart business move. Yeah. But if you're a director whose story is you need to tell a Western, like that's your thing, mm-hmm. you need to tell your story. And that's the, how you're going to make good content. So therefore, maybe the middle ground is find a way to tell your story in a way that is mar- marketable, yeah. a.k.a. something like the Sisters Brothers that's a critique or taking a Western and transplanting it into a different time, like, say, Star Wars, mm-hmm. essentially, yeah. a, they call it a, a space, space Western. Opera. Or a space opera. A space opera, yeah. yeah. Sorry, uh, I guess more, even more so to the it Western is, a, it, is Firefly. Is of, oh, yeah, uh, which Firefly, is a sen- yeah. Which is entirely a, a you know, Western-styled um, outlaw movie in space, which is interesting. So like all of these things, and and I guess to Westerns, it's interesting to note that the director mentioned he was influenced by a lot of Westerns. A which lot I of found, Westerns, yeah. I found very fascinating. Well, when you think about it, it kind of is a Western. Like you could say Neo, Neo Japan is sort of the lawless frontier, and uh, uh, Can- Kanata is, and his and his gang are sort of the you know the the um the lovable outlaws yeah the the outlaws which right are, yeah. are a thing yeah and that was the one thing uh we mentioned before about uh, uh canada as well is yeah. um 
that he because when I when I first looked at just the cover of of Akira, um, I I was just I just assumed right off the bat that he was like some badass lone wolf hero that just you know fucking just kicked ass and took names and stuff. Yep. But that's not at all what he was like. No. That's something I would like to talk about when we wrap this up. But before we do, I have one more thing I wanted to to briefly mention. Um, I don't know what we're at for time here. We switched seats today, so I'm yeah, not... Yeah, we're, we're doing not, things a little differently. Yeah, I'm uh, not 50, at the... 55 minutes. Oh, we're getting pretty close. So we should yeah. wrap this up pretty soon here. Yeah. But I had one point that I wanted to talk about before we get to our ending bit, which is um, the fact that Akira... Like like we mentioned briefly, is based on a manga mm-hmm. uh, that was written for serialized publication in a magazine originally. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's six volumes at over two thousand pages approximately, and the movie essentially takes the first half of the first uh, collection. Yeah. The last half of the last collection, and then an amalgamation of whatever happens in and the middle. No, I have I haven't read the manga, so I can't say I can't speak to a lot of things, but again, to reference this video by uh Super Eye Patch Wolf, um you should check it out. I'm, I'll link it in the description uh below for you guys to check out if you want to listen to it cuz he has great content about this movie as well. Um but essentially what what he's talking about is the idea that it's not really about a character uh, it's about a whole bunch of characters. There's an ensemble of people, and we see it briefly. Mm-hmm. There's that scene where they finally walk out of the police station. They've all been beat yeah. up, yeah. Uh, and there's like eight of them, and we don't even know half of their names. They're just like we know they're part of this gang. Yeah. They walk around. They they're all doing their own thing, and as we progress through the movie, they sort of slowly filter off and do their own thing. And I don't know how it works in the manga, but in the movie, they made a specific choice. When the the director who also I mentioned also wrote the manga, but he uh, made a specific choice instead of talking about a whole bunch of characters in two and a half hours and making it way too confusing and adding way too many story elements and way too yeah. much for people to remember. Let's pick a character, one character who people can relate to, who has uh, and and who will basically carry the story for us. And that ends up being Canada. Um, he. He's essentially he essentially plays like the everyman. Mm-hmm. He's just an average dude. He's not really good at very much. Yeah, he's uh, kind he, of a klutz. Yeah, he's a klutz. Yeah. He's really awkward when he's trying to hit on girls. Uh, he he's a, he's a student. He's young. He's like late teens. He's an orphan. Uh, he doesn't have anything to his name. All he has is this sort of kinetic loyalty and uh, or yeah, essentially kinetic loyalty to his. Uh, to his friends and to his bike gang so that when uh, Tetsuo becomes overtaken by these psychic powers that he gets and can't control them, it's basically Canada's sort of goal to save him again over and over again. Um, And all of those characters that we see that are important have a ton of depth and are well-developed, but we don't see all of the characters that come out. Yeah, exactly. Um, but and I could... think that's why it's successful. Just Sorry, just to finish that yeah, thought. Yeah, but I think sure. that's why it became it was so successful as a film, more than anything else, is because it has a, a person as the lead that everybody can relate to. You know, he, mm-hmm. he's not perfect at everything. He's not a soldier. He's not this. He's not that. He's not a psychic, yeah. crazy guy. He is just a dude with a, a sweet motorbike, who has a hard life and just wants to take care of his friends. Yeah. And you really relate to that so that when you get to the end 
and Tetsuo is being absorbed into this new universe that it's implied that he's creating through Akira and all these other psychic kids that are all vanishing into this. Just, just watch the movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the ending, there, there's a million things we could talk about about the ending yeah. that I would love to converse about uh, maybe another time or talk something. Talk about the trees, man. <laughs> uh, hey. <laughs> uh, but you, uh, the creation of a universe, and, and there's just yeah. so much implication that just that just can't be explored because there's too much. In, in six volumes, you can talk about drug addiction. You can talk about bureaucracy. You can talk about uh, the fall of society. You can talk about uh, the impacts of ca- catastrophe on on the average person. You can talk about so many things and flesh out all of those ideas over time. But in a movie, the best they can do is let you know what the manga is really about and what mm. the story is really about in, in as many ways as possible and leave you wanting more. And to me, Akira, I could watch it over and over again and yeah. get something new out of it every time and still want to go back and read the manga and yeah. get the whole story. So at the very least, it's a good marketing tool oh, totally. for the book itself, yeah, big time. the series. Um, so that, that was kind of the run of thought that I wanted yeah, to say. Yeah, that. that was a good run of thought, man. A run of thought. I love my uh, run of thoughts. Run of thoughts. Um, yeah, and I think that's a smart move too because when it comes to film, you generally want to have two or three characters you really want to focus on Mm -hmm. and to have all those and you know when they were in the police station and they were coming out it's not like you couldn't tell that they weren't close like you could tell like these people were actually friends who knew each other for a long time and kudos to the animators for being able to create uh active um i mean we talked about this again but the fact that like their arms are moving their faces are moving their eyes are doing things that's the most important part very dynamic eyes move while characters are doing things they feel a million times more real oh yeah they're just like like, staring straight at the screen without blinking (laughs) staring blankly talking to someone it feels a little (laughs) awkward (laughs) so yes anyways they did a great job of of that yeah and that's uh pretty much what i want to say about it. you yeah. pretty much said everything i want to say about it oh sweet more, so. all right so uh what do you think a live action akira might look like man but this is our wrap up i we're, we're trying this thing where we're gonna do hypotheses and and theorizing about other things related to the film just for fun um there was a, a trailer for a live action movie that was made that never made it out of pre-production uh, yeah. It had a trailer. It never got made. Development nightmare. Yep. Pretty much. What do you think a live action Akira might look like? I feel, I feel like if you were gonna do a live action Akira, you'd have to do it in a trilogy like Lord of the Rings, for one. Yeah. And yeah. doing Akira on live action would be really tricky, only because I feel, especially now with like sort of this cyberpunk popularity really starting to pick up as mm-hmm. well, that it would be a little too much because I don't know if you've in seen one movie. Well, or... in one movie, but like, I feel like they would, they might go overboard with the whole cyberpunk thing. Mm. Like, yeah, it looks cyberpunk and there's like a lot of neon and stuff, but there, I don't know if you've seen the, and I don't even know if we've talked about it, but there's that show on Netflix called altered carbon. I have seen some of that. And I feel like that, it just does too much cyberpunk. Like you kind of, and maybe that's the point, but like you kind of need like, 
all I will. It's too distracting. All I will say about Altered Carbon, I've only watched like four or five episodes of it, and it certainly goes very far in the design and in the stylization. It's cool, cool, but Um, it's distracting for me. Yeah, and I wouldn't say that it's an amazing show. I I wouldn't say that it's really, really well written, and I wouldn't say... Uh, a lot of things that would uh, that it would be on a pinnacle of greatness by any standards, but I find it really enjoyable to just sort of watch. It is, yeah, like for um, sure. Um, and and I think that's that's an interesting note uh, that when you talked about the fact that cyberpunk is having a resurgence because we're seeing mm-hmm. Blade Runner, which is related to uh, Akira in the sense that it feels like Akira sort of draws out of Blade Runner style oh, yeah. that has has been coming up. We've got this altered carbon. We've got there seems to be a bit of a resurgence of late in cyberpunk, sci-fi, um, dystopian even, even in, sort of worlds. Yeah, yeah, especially that kind of stuff. And I think now more than anything else, that like this would be a time where Akira, the live-action movie, could potentially get made. And to make Akira live action too, one thing that I find uh, that this movie does that a lot of cyberpunk uh, things don't do is it it shows things in the daylight. Yeah, which is a really lot. yeah a lot, and it doesn't always have to take place at night, and it doesn't always have to be really harshly litten. Uh, yeah, lit, harshly lit. Yeah, yeah. I said litten. Oh, is that what you said? Oh, <laughs> yeah, fuck's sake, litten. <laughs> litten. It's so get, litten, man. I want to go get litten. Oh but, yeah, um, man. So litten, <laughs> but, bro. Um, yeah, just the fact that it shows the sun and it's out in the daytime, it just makes it that much more um, grounded. Yeah, totally. Like I mean, you that, see that was parts of the day. You know, you're not being uh, fucking like I fuck the whole time with bright light, light yeah. all the time. Yeah. But but different types of bright light, hard light, exactly. soft light, yeah, exactly. blue light, yet colored light. Uh, and that's something when we were talking about Spawn in the last, I don't I don't think we really mentioned much of, but there was definitely a critique I watched um a youtube video that jess uh sent me i i saw uh watched through it just to kind of get some sense of things and one of the things that the guy critiqued in that in that show was that it's almost everything takes place at night like 95 percent of that show takes place at night and when it happens in the daylight it's you start to you start to see pieces of animation fall apart a little bit there's problems that you don't notice when it's dark Mm -hmm. that uh you notice in broad daylight like that yeah um so to light to give uh um range to the world you need day and you need night yeah um unless you're really like i mean sin city is an example of something that maybe but that was also more stylistic too yeah it was black and white and there was you know but but it just worked better at that's what i was getting at i guess is that like unless you're doing something really stylized and that's the point you're going for like you gotta have so for a live action i think to do properly a trilogy makes a lot of sense Mm -hmm. um obviously you'd want to cast primarily japanese cast uh because that's just how you should do things even though hollywood uh, usually doesn't that, that's, also, uh, that's <clears throat> also Keanu Reeves is a Japanese samurai that, that, that's all <laughs> <laughs> that's also a, a s- sort of marketing thing too um just because and don't quote me on this but right. this is just one of the things I remember from film school is that mm-hmm. um in China they they like seeing more white people in their movies um I I've heard that from a lot of different places okay um but I think China does like to see that and I think it's not just uh, like Matt our, Damon in uh, that one movie um, 
Where's Matt, Matt Damon in that one movie? Yeah, Paul, twenty nineteen. Wasn't it? Wasn't it called uh, like the Wall or something or the Great oh, Wall? Oh yeah, something? where Matt Damon was supposed to be like a Chinese character, but he was Matt Damon. But he was Matt Damon for some reason. I never watched that movie I specifically because Matt Damon was cast. But <laughs> it's it's not just about overseas marketing as well. It's also about the fact that these movies are made by Hollywood for a North American market, mm-hmm. and that means that what they want to do. And this is the strategy that Hollywood has used since the 1930s. Since sound really was in, uh, added to film, they've marketed movies based on marquee talent. Mm-hmm. So we're talking actors that people love to see perform on screen. And and it totally makes sense because, again, to go back to the beginning of this podcast, you know, performance is everything when it comes to film and animation, whatever it, aspect it is people don't go to a movie to see uh you know shots of of a city endlessly or mm-hmm. you know just yeah. cool stunts and stuff people go to watch a movie to see characters do things and to they, see a human story to see well. a human story yeah. and something that they can relate to and emote with and so it's become the idea of hollywood that they need to essentially the cast is uh, is everything. Talent on screen is everything, which means that they're going to pick people that will sell or as the phrase goes, put butts in seats. Yeah. You know, Matt Damon is an actor that people are like, oh, Matt Damon, I love that guy. I'm going to watch that movie. And it doesn't matter to a lot of people that, it, you know, it's a movie about a Chinese story. What they care about is the fact that an actor or actress that they love is going to be yeah. the lead. And that's what brings people to a screen and i think that's slowly changing a bit in in light of modern um uh, pc is not really the word anymore but culture of of trying to um be more accepting and open and and all that kind of stuff inclusion that's the word i'm looking for uh in that range i think audiences are are more critical of choices Mm -hmm. like that yeah these days to be fair though like uh for the live action Ghost in the Shell. Yeah. I think Scarlett Johansson did a really good job. Like I haven't seen the anime. I haven't seen the anime. I, I I think she did a pretty solid job. I that. enjoyed the movie. Um I, I heard watched it, it more for the production design aspect, yeah. but you know. I heard it described as whitewashed. And it was kind of whitewashed. It felt more like a North American, like sort of sci-fi action movie than it felt like a Japanese anime. But again, it was an adaptation. Yeah. So it, it's up to interpretation. And adapted, adapted for a North American audience. Yeah, too. and and that becomes soft, uh, soft ground to tread on, I think, because some is, people, yeah. <laughs> some fans really, really, really want to They're see. Purists exactly what their original artwork is adapted so it's like oh you you know you read this book and this book was your favorite thing and now you want to see the movie do it perfectly or you watch this anime that's making a movie and you want to see the exact same thing on in the new platform and other people want to see something different and want to see something unique or something that changes it up and i think i'm more in the in the camp of the latter right um I will handle both perfectly fine because yeah, I'm not same picky. Here. Yeah. But, but I think that your, it's interesting your preference to consider preference lead, yeah. leans over a little bit towards having the actual ethnic. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, at, at least when you're telling a story about Japanese people in Japan, you should cast Japanese people, even if they're Japanese Americans. That's just as good as you know casting straight Japanese actors, um, because you're still you're providing work for people who don't have 
as many opportunities to get, you know, roles like this, you know, because in Hollywood, there aren't a lot of big roles for Japanese actors. Mm -hmm. Um, And if they are, you find them often being villains or side characters. And that's not like that kind of sucks after a while. Yeah. Yeah. It gets old. Yeah. Like I I met, I worked with this guy recently um, on a short that I was, uh, lighting for surprisingly enough but it was it was like another one of those like me and a bunch of friends kind of thing made it um and i met this actor through uh through this guy who's east indian yeah he's east indian and he really really wanted to act since he was a kid and he um he ended up going to school for engineering but he's like no i'm gonna follow my dream and he's been in canada he's been trying and trying and trying and trying for so long to become an actor and he was on the verge of of giving up because he just kept getting the role of a villain or a sidekick or like a background mm. or an extra or like like all of these things that like are not what he wants to be doing he wants to be an actor which means he wants to get big roles and mm. and have challenges and he was ready to give up because he couldn't find any of those roles cuz nobody was offering them and then he got lucky and Netflix created a show uh that is happens he happens to be the like the lead or one of not the lead but one of the more important characters as an east as an an east indian Mm -hmm. um and that like kick-started this thing and now he does like plays in toronto and all this other kind of stuff but like it took an independent well essentially independent like group making a a show that has this inclusion it's hard to find so I guess that long rant is just you know you'd have to cast you'd have to cast Japanese actors. Okay, so here here's a question for you. Mm-hmm. So if they were to make a uh, live action, and we're running at about an hour and twelve minutes here, I'll talk uh, you know this what? quick. Th- that that's okay. If we go a little bit longer on this, I'm I'm totally fine. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to talk about. There's there a lot is. To cover. There's way too much to talk about. So if they were to do a live action American uh, version of this, do you think that they might just change the city instead? Maybe instead of having neo tokyo you have neo york oh or something god like that now it's it's not new york it's neo york <laughs> oh my god or like neo la or something yeah. like that yeah i mean that's that's doable i think that's more functional but that's also still kind of just kind putting of, a band-aid on the problem and right it, well and it also just draws away from what you know the story is essentially about which is mainly japanese history yeah, like the the you know for obviously the the bombing of of Hiroshima yeah. and Nagasaki, um, references to volcanic problems of course, um, like all of these things like Japan has had a lot of really traumatic, um, destructive catastrophes in in their history and and this movie really sort of tries to come to terms with how people handle those you know because when when you're in a city where you know, you're just one day, everything's fine. And then the next day the whole city's destroyed and there's like over a hundred thousand people are dead and everything's irradiated. And like, like, where do you go? What do you do? And how do you handle that? And a mm. lot of Japanese, uh, animation that I've seen kind of tries to talk about not how to prevent those, but how to handle them after they've sort of already occurred. Yeah. And, and you, that's you can what see it's essentially that. Yeah. about, right? Like, um, it, um, sort of with the intro clip, it's real people put in extraordinary situations yeah. learning how to survive. Bringing it full circle, man. And I learning, like it. Like, and, and it's less about the destruction, but it's about the aftermath of the, the destruction yeah. as well, which I think is a lot more compelling than, uh, I, I can't even think of a movie, but just say a movie where, you know, 
there is danger coming. Yeah, totally. I, I like seeing the aftermath and how people deal with those problems after the fact mm-hmm. and how to cope with them and how it changes them as a as a as a person and you know well and, and that's something that the manga i think and again to go back to that video i keep talking about um he he uh, that the guy who made that video has obviously read it and so he has a pretty good understanding and mm. some of the stuff he was talking about like it seems like at least the first two volumes are the backstory of of these psychic people and the deve- and who akira is and then how he what leads to his mental breakdown that causes this gigantic explosion that destroys Tokyo. And then there's all of these frames that he was showing images of that are just like, like I get watching his video showing those frames and having him talk about uh, like what it is and what it means. These just gigantic page illustrations of destruction and just like nothing left. And, you know, it's just really, moving to to Mm. see all of that and it's got so much more power than you can put into a a film so i think in that sense the manga has more capability in that regard oh yeah it's it's like a Um, it's like a tv series essentially yeah i mean even if he made akira as a television series a netflix original I, I mean, they haven't been doing so well with their anime remakes, but, but I would not be surprised if they tried. Because what what do we have now? We've got uh, Death Note, we've got Bleach, we've got... Um, oh, there was another one. There was another one, damn it. There was uh, another one on that list that I remember seeing pop up just recently. And like they, they've not been doing well. No. Um, they're not generally very good. Uh, they're trying to cram a lot of stuff into a very short movie, but if they were to make a series out of it, I could see that turning into something really yeah. powerful, especially like a six ep- a six, even a six season, like short, limited run kind of thing, one season per volume or something. I don't know. There, there's a lot of possibilities there. And uh, I think in order for this to work, as we usually talk about on this, is it would have to be practical. Like the bikes. Oh yeah. Would have to be practical. Like. Oh yeah. All that you know, the city would like ha- actually have to be dressed. Mm-hmm. You know, to, I mean, to the best I mean, of their ability. Even, even anyway, if they right? went to the extent that they did with Blade Runner, where you build a miniature level, like, you know, human height city that you can yeah. run cameras through for the big wide shots. Yeah. And then you just find some real crap streets in, in wherever, you know, mm. uh, New York or L.A. or anything like that for the alleys. Yeah. Um, you know, you find like Times Square is uh, probably as close of a North American uh, representative of Tokyo as you'll find. I, I think... I think this generally, like if if Netflix could do it, I think generally, um, it would just work better in Japan because, true, the, the thing with Japan is, is it has multiple levels to it in a lot of ways. Because I remember when I was on the when I was on the train going to um going to Kyoto, like I yep. was looking at just some of the like some of their layouts, and there was like there was like one section up above that was like you know like a you know like a bridge or something, and then down below was like a street, and then there'd be another one down below that that was like another tiny little street up below the actual street. It was crazy. Levels upon levels. And yeah. then I guess that's a product of having no layered. space, you know, mm-hmm. architecture is completely different when you don't have room, mm-hmm. you know, Japan has had to build up and build down to handle populations. Yep. Whereas in, in North America, all across North America, we have so much space. Like, I mean, here in Calgary, even, uh, you know, we have a very small, downtown core and there, there's like a there's a lot of apartment buildings and office spaces and stuff and they keep building more of them and it's not that it's not nice but it's just it's not 
it's not the core of the city. The city is sprawling. It's huge. Yeah. I mean, we're what, 60 kilometers from end to end, I think the city is. Oh, wow. And we're talking like just gigantic neighborhoods of houses and yards and like, you know, everybody gets their room and it's not the same architectural style as what yeah. Tokyo is. And yeah, exactly. And the other, the other thing is too, like there's, there's buildings like feet away from each other. Like there was one I remember or two buildings I remember seeing where if, you were in one building and I was in the other, say we were both on the same yeah. floor. I could, I could just lean out the window. Like if both of us just leaned out the window, we could have a conversation like we are now. Like that's how close the fucking building wow. Crazy. You know? So especially when you take the perspective of the director and the creator mm -hmm. of Akira and how he grew up and where he grew up, that right there just influences like even in the, even in the movie, like it looks so crowded and it looks so small, right? It would be really interesting talking on the topic of, of Netflix making something like this. Like if, if we had a Netflix series done of Akira um, to have a, give the opportunity to a young Japanese director, say someone who knows the culture, knows the, the ins and outs, knows the cities, knows, knows, knows the story. And, and also right? knows and, the material too. And, right? and the material yeah. and, and gives, somebody who might not have had an opportunity because at the end of the day like netflix is an american company but oh, why not expand <laughs> but at no. the end of the day they are a, they're a global entity you know yeah. like their 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 platform is watched around the world in the uk in australia in the us in canada in china well probably maybe not in china but <laughs> north uh, korea no mm, hold on <laughs> no. a second <laughs> but like most mo they are global essentially yeah, because exactly. they're a streaming yeah. service because they use this wonderful great thing we call the interwebs uh they they are accessible around the world so why would you not use that to expand and integrate and provide opportunities for people. I mean, from a business standpoint, it just makes you look good in these days, in mm -hmm. this day and age in where people are age. really talking about trying to get representation in and trying to create opportunities for people who don't have opportunities. Like this would be a perfect chance to go to a young Japanese director and say, here is money to make a show based on you know the the manga are based on the movie probably the manga originally obviously but yeah um and and see where that goes live action wise and creating vehicles and things and like that there, there's even an, an advantage to already having that animated movie too right mm -hmm. like there, there's already an advantage to that because they can look at the animated movie and go okay like here's what we can do with animation let's try to translate this over to um a live action thing and there's so much that you can draw off of just from watching the movie yeah for sure and and i feel like it interestingly enough too i feel like there's a, been a bit of a resurgence in the last few years i don't know if maybe that's just because i've been getting involved with it again but um i feel like the interest in and knowledge about akira is greater now than it was five years ago you know it, it's coming back into the public eye a little bit more yeah um, you know, I mean the um the what the cinema cinema cinemassacre cinemassacre. Oh, yeah. Um, that video was pretty recent, right? Yeah, it was like yesterday. Yesterday or yeah. something, they put it out. So, I mean that like people are still talking about this and maybe coming back. Like it's not necessarily a bad time to get no, a show with this whole cyberpunk thing getting really popular yeah. and everything and I, just people's points of view on things and everybody's perspective on things it's like go go to japan make make akira yeah 
in Japan, right? Especially with people just who know the subject matter, who know the landscape, who know the culture, who know the material, who know this, who knew that, blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. And it's, I mean, it's such an influential piece that, I don't know. And I, I feel like a modern a modern reimagining would be really interesting to see. So I, I yeah. think... I think that uh, that's about all I can say about what a live action Akira might look like. Yeah. Um I think I think I've said everything I probably need to say for this episode. I think I have to. All right. Well, there we go. Uh I mean it, I guess in summary wrap up or whatever it's it's still I I still think it's probably one of the most influential uh animated films if mm. not films in general. It's yeah, got totally. it reaches everywhere. It's got influences in in every different medium from video games to to writing to novels to to everything uh i mean there's a, a 19 second clip on youtube i showed you where it's just all of the yeah a, a lot of the instances where a specific that bike slide yeah. shot was just reused like shot like frame yeah perfect batman and, the animated series ninja turtles from the early 2000s yeah um, all these other animes that i've never a few seen other japanese there's like a pokemon yep. one or something there was a po- yep, team yeah. rocket has has a moment apparently where they do the slide oh, okay. like <laughs> the slide well, that, that's what that was right that yeah was yeah, a team, the slide, yeah. yeah. It, it's yeah it was i mean it, it it's echoed its impact is echoed across multiple media platforms and, around the world even now we're at uh like 40 years fuck. since the movie was made and over almost 50 years since the anime first started be or the manga first started being written mm-hmm. and it's still so prevalent and talked about. And I, I think it will continue to be so moving forward. Yeah. Um, and like I said, I didn't even realize how Im- influential it actually was like on your life. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Like I just, I didn't realize it. I'm like, Oh, that's from halo. That's from metal gear. That's from yep. this, that's from that. And I was just, and, and I, I, I'm, it's interesting. Away. Cause you, you, you just watched it for the first time today. Yeah. Um, and having all of those references in your head where you're like, wait a second, I've seen this exact thing here. I've seen this exact thing there. Yeah, and like yeah, exactly. connecting all those dots back and finding the source is just such an interesting, cause I did the yeah, same thing too. It was almost like a religious experience. <laughs> I was like, this is where all this stuff came from. And and like I said, it, it inspired what I'm writing and I didn't even know it. Yeah. Like I had, I'd like they're like uh, when they're in the, the freezer with uh, Kira, yep. I had a very similar sort of uh, design idea that I had for my movie and I didn't even realize it. Uh, like I didn't even realize I was influenced by Akira and I hadn't even seen it. Like that's, that's fucked that's up. That's how culturally impactful this movie has yeah. been. And and this this IP in general, I say IP a lot. I don't know if I've explained what I mean when I say IP, but I'm talking intellectual property, uh, which is essentially just like a piece of material that can be and, and has been copyrighted. An yeah, an idea that is belongs to somebody uh, or a, a worker. And I, so that that's what I mean when I say IP. Um, IP because it's a manga. It's a and there was some short films that he wrote and directed yeah. based in the same world and stuff like that. So there there's other stuff out there that I haven't. Maybe really he started the whole in, shared but... universe thing. Oh my god! Oh my god! It's all a conspiracy. We're all connected, man. Uh, as always, spoiler alert: if you don't want to find out 
if you don't want to be, have the movie spoiled for you, watch it before you listen to this podcast. Watch uh, the fucking movie. Watch the fucking movie, even if you want to have it spoiled for yourself. Just watch <laughs> it because it's worth it. Yeah. Uh, we didn't spoil too much stuff, I think. No, we were pretty um, light on the spoilers. Yeah. Uh, so that was good. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. Uh, we are Cinematics Cast on Twitter. Uh, no. Yes. I always get them mixed up. Instagram is Cinematics Podcast. Yeah. And Twitter is Cinematics Cast because it Twitter shortens things because that's what it does, I guess. It's cool, man. That's what everybody it's, does. It's now. just shorten things, man. It's what everybody does now, TBH. Uh, TBH, bro. Uh, SMH. God. I am. Um, you can find us on, I mean, you're listening to us now, but if you want to know where you can find us, we're on Spotify, we're on Google Podcasts, we're on Anchor, we're on Breaker, we're on Radio Public, we're on a couple other uh, various places, Stitcher, all that kind of thing. Ta- we're taking over. We are taking over, the world by storm. Uh, you can also find me on on Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, um, Twitter, and Facebook as Dark Sales Films if you want to find out more about the stuff that we do um, under the blanket of the dark sales films production company um thank you guys so much for listening and we'll catch you next week bye 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 bye